I'm Margaret Mueller, President and CEO of the Executives Club of Chicago, Chicago region's top business forum. Join me on the Executives Exchange as we go deep with some of the most successful executives from the Chicago region and unlock the keys to their success. Trust me, you're going to want to hear this. On this episode of the Executives Exchange, we hear from Melissa Urban, co-founder of Whole30 and author of The Book of Boundaries. Urban tells the story of how hitting rock bottom with her addiction led her to build the Whole30 brand and mission. Her journey taught her to honor her limits in all situations, a lesson she shares in her recent book. Enjoy this conversation with Melissa. Hi, Melissa. So good to see you. Hi, Margaret. So good to see you again. So I have so much I want to get to. So we'll just jump into it. We'll get to as much as we can. I know we won't get to all of it, but um, we'll hit some good stuff. So tell us just a little bit about where you grew up. Yeah. So um, I grew up in Nashua, New Hampshire, which is right on the border of Massachusetts. I came from this big Catholic Portuguese family. So there were always tons of aunts and uncles and cousins and little kids running around. And we celebrated holidays together. I have a younger sister named Kelly, who is my best friend now, but was not always. We didn't always get along. And my parents were married for the bulk of my childhood. They did not divorce until I was in college. So my mom stayed home and took care of the kids. And my dad worked sometimes two jobs to, you know, allow my mom to stay home with us. Oh, were both your parents Portuguese? Yeah. Well, no, my dad is not, but my mom's family was 100% Portuguese. So with the Portuguese Catholic side really ran the entire kind of show. Yeah. Um, everyone was, you know, I learned how to follow 17 different conversations at once just sitting uh-huh. around my grandma's kitchen. Yeah. Um, I grew up in a Catholic family. My mom was Sicilian. So yeah, I'm sure yeah. we can relate. Uh-huh. <laughs> Um, so I'd love to just hear anything from your childhood, an experience or a person who really influenced you, who you are today. Oh, my vivu. That's the Portuguese word for grandfather. He was the most kind and caring and generous man. He taught me how to play cribbage. So we spent hours playing cribbage. I mean, I must have been eight or nine years old, but picked up the game quickly. He would take me outside into his garden and show me around. He just had the most gentle, calming energy. And He passed when I was quite young, um, but I really do still feel his presence in my life today. Oh, that's really great. Do you have cribbage tournaments now? We don't. You know, I haven't played in a while, and you just reminded me that I need to get a board and teach my kid how to play. Yeah. Yeah, I know. You know, it's so interesting because kids have so much more available to them now. Like, I don't know how interested they get in these things. These things were so much fun for us. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. There's some things I loved from my childhood, and my kids are like, I don't know. It's kind of boring. I'm like, no. My son still loves board games. We have an entire yeah. cabinet full of games, and we're playing Sorry, we're playing Uno, the games I played when I was a kid, but yeah. we're also playing Taco versus Burrito and yes. Exploding Kittens, and he loves yes. those too. So that makes me happy. I love that there's so many more cooperative board games now, which is yeah. really cool. I, I love the message of it, and they're just really fun to play, right? Yeah. Like we all are trying to win the game. And yes. I think it's great. Um, there's something else. You're really into rucking, which I'm just fascinated about. And I've been talking to a friend and asking her if she wants to try it with me. Chicago doesn't have a whole lot of hills, right? But we could still do it. But just tell us what it is and how you got into it. Yeah. So I am an avid hiker and I you know, live in Salt Lake City, Utah. We have tons of mountains here and I hike year round. I hike, I snowshoe and I travel a ton and hike a ton. And when I discovered rucking a couple years ago, rucking is essentially just putting on some kind of weighted backpack and walking. And the benefits are just so underrated. I mean, you're walking, but you're adding extra weight. So it's good for the cardiovascular system. It's good for your skeletal system and bone density. It's incredible for posture. It's really good for balance, studies have shown. And you know, it just adds a level of complexity and discomfort, which can also mm-hmm. be really beneficial. So, you know, in in the easiest iteration, you just throw a backpack on that has some weight in it and you walk. And so I started you do doing that. it. You could just throw like soup yeah. cans in a backpack. You absolutely can. And I have sort of the rucking setup where I've got this special backpack and the special weight plate that goes in it because I do it all the time and I wanted mine to be a little bit more comfortable. But yes, you can absolutely get started with anything. And I started just, you know, I take the dog for a walk every day. So why don't I just throw 20 pounds on my back? And then I started adding it, you know, doing walks with my kid to the park or wearing it in the gym for some of my workouts. And it just adds 
I think a really fantastic level of especially cardiovascular health, but you can do it with friends. You can do it outside. You can do it with the whole family. You can talk and do it. So like there are social benefits and green space benefits. I just think it's probably like the most perfect form of exercise out there. That's really cool. I know. I think I'm going to try it. You should. Um, I have a friend who was training for a marathon and had a stress fracture and just was really bummed and couldn't run. And I said, you know, there's this thing. Running. Yes. I think we should try it. So I think and it's she's so much easier it. on the joints than running. Absolutely. Yeah. We've come a long way since the Jane Fonda, like yeah. wrist weights and ankle weights, you know, walking around. <laughs> Absolutely. So you are best known for founding Whole30, which is a wildly popular wellness program of which I'm a huge acolyte. I've been following you for years, which is why I was so excited to finally meet you in person last week. It was so cool. For the very few people who are listening who are not aware, what is the Whole30? Yeah. Whole30 is a 30-day self-experiment designed to help people identify food sensitivities create new healthy habits around food, and restore a healthy relationship with food. So it's not a weight loss diet. It's not a quick fix or a cleanse. It's not even prescriptive in that the Whole30 doesn't say this is how you should eat forever. Every dietitian in the world says there is no one-size-fits-all when it comes to diet. You have to figure out what works for you. And people listening say, yes, that makes so much sense how do I figure out what works for me? And Whole30 is really the answer to how. So for 30 days, you'll eliminate foods that are commonly problematic to varying degrees across a broad range of people. And it's not that these foods are somehow bad. It's that they can be problematic. And we're going to do a little experiment to see how they work for you. So you'll pull them out for 30 days and see what happens to your energy, sleep, digestion, cravings, joint swelling and pain, asthma, allergies, migraines. All of those things can be influenced by the food you eat. And then at the end of the 30 days, you'll reintroduce those food groups one at a time, very carefully and systematically, and compare your experience. And what this does is it gives you, at the end of this program, this blueprint for how foods work in your system so that you can then take those learnings and create the perfect sustainable diet for you according to you know, your own definition of health and what is and isn't worth it. Yeah. I know I've done it, I think four times. I'm kind of losing count. And I learn so much each time. Yeah. And um, I'm excited to report that dairy is really not a thing for me, which is mm -hmm. great because I love dairy. But every time I keep wanting gluten to be okay and it's just not. And like, yeah. I can just tell every time I bring it back, I'm like, darn it. Yeah. Like, it's just not for me. And certain kinds, right? Like, so like bread isn't great for me, but there are like certain other things that have gluten that is fine for me. But, um, I've really had to just accept the fact that yeah, this is real that, and like do it a second time. Like maybe it won't happen this time yeah. and it does. And so I'm in an but acceptance process right now. It's so powerful to know though, because now you're I like, know. okay, I know how this is going to impact me and I get to decide, is it worth it? Right. This, maybe this food, my mom's chocolate chip walnut cake that she used to make when I was a kid that she still makes for me that this, you know, good. today, that's worth it. And even if yeah. it makes me break out and makes my stomach unhappy for a day, I'm going to deal with that because this cake is so worth it. But at least I know how it's going to impact me. Right. And then it's a choice. Yeah. And you're prepared. Exactly. Yeah. That's really great. So were you always into health and fitness? No. No. <laughs> um, in fact, there was a period of time for about five years where I was addicted to drugs. So, you know, I had this very kind of idyllic childhood, but then at 16, I experienced sexual abuse by someone in my extended family. And I feel like my life took like a sharp kind of veering right turn from that point on. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know how to cope. And, and my family didn't really know how to cope with this thing that had happened to me. And, you know, I found drugs a year or two later after desperately looking for a way to sort of numb and forget about and and try to ignore what had happened. And then I spent the next five years using. So it wasn't until I entered into recovery for the second time, which was the final time, that I realized in order to you know, maintain my recovery, I had to do a couple things. And one of the things I had to do was really embrace and become this idea that I was now a healthy person with healthy habits. I didn't feel like it. I only had a few weeks of recovery under my belt. I was still quite sick and still had cravings and still really struggling. But I was like, I'm going to start going to the gym. I don't know what I'm doing. I've never been to the gym, but I'm going to start going to the gym. And and I'm going to you know, try to find my way by behaving as if 
behaving as if I was a healthy person with healthy habits. So I started going to the gym and I started paying attention to what I ate and I made new like-minded friends and I got rid of stuff that reminded me of my drug days. And so that was really in the year 2000, the start of my health and fitness journey. So it's been a long time, but it wasn't always like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I worked in a mental health hospital right out of college. So I started out doing intake And then I worked on the adult unit and I was running group therapy, which was ridiculous. I was 21 years old. Like what did I know about running group therapy? But that's a whole other conversation. But I've observed over time, both in the people I love and the clients I was working with, that anyone who really, really digs down and does the work of a 12-step program, like really does it, are so solidly on the other side and they're just better humans than the rest of us. Like there's something about that. And I keep wondering throughout my life, like what is the 12-step program for people who don't have an addiction but want to be better people, want to go through the processes of that? Um, and how do you do that without having to hit rock bottom to get there? Yeah, I think what you're bringing to people is some of that. And I don't know if that resonates with you, what I'm saying, um, or if you have any reaction to that. Yeah. Well, I actually didn't do a 12-step program. I entered into the 12 steps as part of my initial recovery program because that's what they do in rehab, right? That's what they give you is they give you a therapist and a 12-step program and they put me on Prozac. The 12 (laughs) steps just never resonated with me. They work. It's so incredibly powerful for so many people. For me, I could not embrace the idea that I was powerless. For me, because of my trauma, I had to find a way to reclaim my power and trust myself again. So I actually went through like a different channel. I did a ton of therapy. I had a fantastic therapist who called me on all of my BS and refused to let me gloss over and, you know, really worked with me to unpack my trauma. And through that therapeutic practice and a lot of my own self-work and self-awareness and other physical modalities, yoga, acupuncture, some of the somatic practices, I got to the same place that I think a lot of people do through 12-step programs. But you're right. It's a ton of work. It's a ton of introspection. Things get worse before it gets better. You can't yeah. like unpack one thing without having the entire closet, you know, fall down on your head and you've got to sort through it all. Yeah. It's a lot of work and a lot of commitment, but I also felt like I didn't have a choice because I wasn't going to make it back a third time if I didn't do this work. I know. And I feel like so many people, they've had to hit this crisis point before they do it. And I would love to find ways, and I think you're doing it, to bring people there without having to have reached that crisis point. You can start this work at any time in your life. You don't have to hit rock bottom. Absolutely. Yeah. Crisis does motivate change. But what we try to do through Whole30 and through my work on boundaries is to say, you know, where you are right now, yeah, you're not at a rock bottom. Yes, things are pretty good. But you know, what if you could do this little self-experiment or do this work, this self-work and this work yeah. with your relationships and things could be so much better? Yeah. So we've talked to a few really smart founders such as yourself, like Jenny Brittenbauer of Jenny's Ice Cream, who knew that they needed to hire either a president or a CEO to run the business so that they could really focus on what they are best at. So how did that process evolve for you? Because you are so associated with the Whole30, right? Yeah. I've always been the face of Whole30. I've always done all of the writing. I've always been the voice since 2009. And as the company grew and as our presence grew and the business grew, it became abundantly clear. Two things became clear. Number one, I couldn't do it all. I could not be the face and the voice and the content creator and the one who has like the big ideas and figures out how to execute and listens to the community and be the person who runs the day-to-day, who handles the KPIs and who keeps people on task and who manages all the people. I couldn't do both. And the second thing that was abundantly clear was that I was not – I had like out – how do I put this? I was the rate-limiting factor in the growth of my own business because you know, at some point in the growth, I realized I – I'm I'm not the best person to navigate strategy. I'm not the best person to navigate KPIs. I'm not a profit-driven CEO. I care about impact so much more than profit. And if we want to grow the program to have the impact that I know we want to have, I need to bring someone in who is just focused on growth, strategy, and performance. Mm-hmm. So that was the moment a couple years ago where I was like, I need to bring someone on and we looked outside the company and we looked, you know, through recruiters and different strategic partners. And finally, um, my vice president of business development kind of put her hand up and said, I could do this. And I was like, yeah, I think you could. And we moved her into 
the interim president role for six months, and now she's Whole30's president. That's so great. Yeah. And I'm so happy that you got there when you did. I think so many founders hang on for too mm. long because they don't want to give up that control. And probably because of all the work that you've done throughout your life, you're able to just acknowledge these things and realize oh, yeah. that. I have no attachment to the title of CEO. I have no attachment to any of that. All I want to continue to do is provide the ideas and the resources and create the things that I know are going to help people succeed through the Whole30, through my books, through my boundary practice. That's what I care about. So the rest of it, I have no attachment to. Yeah. So what was the greatest gift in all of that? What did it allow you to do? Well, it allowed me to take a back seat and let someone else think about these aspects of the business that had been... They certainly weren't weighing me down, but it's really challenging to go from a meeting where you're super into spreadsheets and numbers and projections and then flip right into creative work where I'm writing a newsletter. That's like a really big mental clunk for me. So to allow someone else to do that then freed me up to say, how can I re-envision the next phase of this business? How can I re-envision you know, I'm listening to the community. They're telling me X, Y, Z. Can I read between the lines and say, this is something we can do for you that's going to help you solve a pain point or find more success with the program? I like writing. I like content creation. That's the best part of my job. I like speaking. I love doing interviews like this. So now I feel like I get to focus on the things that I'm the best at and only I can do because no one can write in my voice and the things that bring me the most joy. It's like a win-win. Yeah. You know, something else I real I really admire about you, Melissa, is you're actually a really strong DEI leader. And mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever thought of yourself as a DEI leader, but having watched you and getting your emails all these years, I have seen you show up in this way for a while now. And your thoughtfulness and your inclusivity of a variety of cultures and cuisines and your recognition of privilege in what you do, um, I think is remarkable and I want to talk about for just a minute. I think one of the best pieces of DEI thought leadership I've ever read. I'm talking, I read Harvard Business Review journals, right? And CEO things and all this. But it was this email that you sent out, I don't know, maybe a year or two ago, changing your stance on MSG. And Mm. I shared that email with several people. I said, this is incredible. This is what inclusivity is all about. So I don't know if you even remember this email, if this, of course. if this even resonated for you, if you thought about it as such a profound moment, but if you can talk about it a little bit. Yes, of course. I mean, Whole30 is deeply invested in our diversity, equity, and inclusion work as an organization and have been for a very long time. We have really strong DEI values. We think about our these practices in every single thing we do, from the creators that we work with to the language that we use on our website to like we just selected a new bank for the business. And our DEI focus was a huge reason why we selected the bank that we are now going to be working with. The rule that you cannot have MSG on the whole 30 has been around since day one. And it was because I thought the science was relatively conclusive that MSG can promote these, what is colloquially known as Chinese restaurant syndrome, but really Mm -hmm. this idea of like headaches and lethargy and kind of this maladaptive response in the body. And I thought, as many people did, that the science was pretty clear. But two years ago, I heard a podcast that made me question that. And I started listening to other podcasts and doing as much research as I could on what turns out to be the quite racist and xenophobic history of the demonization of MSG and Chinese restaurant syndrome. So after doing tons of research and consulting with a lot of experts in the field, I came back to Whole30 and I said, we need to roll this rule back. It's the right thing to do for the community because this ingredient does not pose as anywhere near as big a threat as we imagined that it would. And there are plenty of other additives that we allow in the program that are, you know, could be problematic, but mostly are not. But from a diversity, equity, and inclusion perspective, we need to call out specifically where we went wrong, believing some of the narrative and all of the research that we've done to kind of demonstrate where this narrative really came from. So we did this enormous, you know, it was a big blog post. It was a big newsletter. It was a big social media campaign. We got a lot of flack for it. We got a lot of flack. Oh my gosh, because this is not mainstream information. Most of the mainstream MDs and experts in the field will still tell you that MSG is horrifically problematic and they're still leaning on this really bad science and this story that has just been kind of passed down generationally. But we were really proud to take the stance that we have 
not only because it's the right thing to do for the scientific integrity of the program, but because we thought it was the right thing to do from the perspective of our lens of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And what I think is so important in the work and about what you wrote is an acknowledgement that information and knowledge evolves. And as we learn, we change these things and it's taking the accountability and you just mastered it, you know, like how you can uh, not be overly apologetic, right? But you can still take responsibility and acknowledge and have it be a wonderful lesson. And I just encourage anyone who's listening to go back and find that email. And whenever you feel that you've misstepped as a leader and need to walk something back, I would encourage you to read Melissa's email for inspiration Thank on how to do you. that. That's, it's on the Whole30 website. If you just go to whole30.com and search for MSG, it's right up there. Thank you for that. Because we all missed up. And you know, we have to do these things. And I think these are hard letters or emails to write when we have to you know, take accountability for these things. And you just did it so great. Thank you so much. It is really important. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor, Sure. Audio equipment for the Executives Exchange podcast is provided by Shure Incorporated. When your team is depending on you for information and motivation, you can't afford to sound anything less than clear and confident. For nearly 100 years, performers and world leaders have depended on Shure microphones. Whether you're in front of a camera or behind a podium, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. Welcome back. Okay, so we should talk about your book. I could talk about Whole30 forever, but we are here to talk about your book, The Book of Boundaries, which is your first book not about Whole30. I love how you talk about becoming the boundary lady. So if you can share with our listeners how that came to be. Yeah, so for a really long time, I would get stopped in public and people would say, are you the Whole30 lady? And we joked about it so much that I was like, I'm just going to make a t-shirt that says Whole30 lady. I love that the program had (laughs) grown beyond me. So people were, they knew Whole30, they knew, but they didn't necessarily know who I was. I was like, I love it. This is great. So then a couple years ago, you know, the Whole30 in and of itself is a boundary program because it's an elimination program. And for 30 days, you're not eating break room donuts or your mom's pasta or having a glass of wine at happy hour. You say no a lot. And I quickly discovered in the earliest days in 2009 that people struggled to say no, especially in the face of social pressures and in social situations. So I started helping people say no. How do I say no to, I want to go to happy hour, but how do I go and not drink? Or my boss is saying, oh, have a bagel. How do I say no when he was so nice to bring the bagels into the office? I help people find the language for that. And then they inevitably said, wow, you're really good at helping me say no. Can you talk to me about my mother-in-law who's always dropping by without calling? Or can you talk to me about the coworker who's always gossiping? Or you know, the friend who's always like emotionally dumping on me? So I started helping people with their boundary scenarios and other relationships. And that really came to a head in 2020 in the pandemic when we you know, all realized that as work and kids and school and meetings and relationships and housework all kind of bled together, that we no longer had the natural boundary demarcations that we used to. And we needed to set healthy boundaries to keep our families safe and healthy and preserve our own mental health. So there was a really long time on Instagram where I started running these Ask Me a Boundary series and people would submit their questions and they were the most popular series I ever read and recalled. And people started saying to me, oh, my spouse knows you as that boundary lady on Instagram. And I thought, okay, we've morphed from the whole 30 lady to the boundary lady. Okay. (laughs) Oh, that's really great. Um, So I have the book. I read it probably in one sitting. It's really good. Highly recommend it. Um, There's a lot in there. Can you give our listeners a glimpse into what's inside? Yes. So the, you know, the book is from a layperson's perspective and it it talks about my journey with boundaries. The first boundary I ever set was in my recovery, designed to preserve my recovery and actually save my own life. And that was the moment that I realized that boundaries were the key to expanding my life beyond my wildest imagination. So I talk about boundaries and what they are and what they aren't. I think we have a lot of misconceptions that boundaries are somehow controlling or mean or selfish. So we have to unlearn all of that. And I break all of that down. I talk about my boundary philosophy, which is minimum effort, maximum effect. I want you to be able to go in with the kindest, gentlest boundary language possible and still achieve the desired effect. And then I walk you through 
how to set boundaries using actual scripts that you can repeat word for word. Because so often people are like, I know I need to set a boundary, but how do I say it? So I mm-hmm. give you scripts in a ton of different categories. We talk about scripts at work in a variety of categories with parents and in-laws and grandparents and other family members, boundaries with friends and neighbors, with co-parents, romantic partners, and you know relationships like dating. I talk about boundaries around sensitive subjects like grief or divorce or various stages of life and boundaries with yourself. And then at the end, we talk about all of the ways that boundaries can improve your life and how you can respond in the face of pushback and be respectful of other people's boundaries as well. And the language in the scripts are so great. I and mean, I can't tell you how many times I've talked to a therapist or a coach or someone and they've articulated it so well. I'm like, can you just come talk for me? Yeah. Can you just <laughs> say it? You're trying to like write it all down because um, that's a lot of people just struggle with the words, right? The intent is there and um, they know what they want to say, but sometimes the, yeah. the language. So giving people scripts is so good. The scripts are helpful too because people, especially women, I've noticed, tend to want to like over-explain and justify yes. their boundary when – you know, it's it's really good and healthy to practice this idea of like, no, that's not a good fit. And you don't have to explain why. Or no, I can't come tonight. Or no, thank you, I'm not drinking right now. And you don't have to go into this lengthy explanation. The other person does not need to understand or approve of your boundary in order to respect it. And practicing that language can be really helpful too. I've moved a lot towards this fit mindset. So instead of like, I don't like that person, it's like, we're not a good fit. Yeah. You know, like they're they're a perfectly good friend to lots of other people, but for me, just not a good fit. And that helps a lot too. It just takes away so much judgment and um the saying less. So I had a friend in grad school who I adore, and I'm gonna see her in a few weeks. It it was so jarring because she was so good at this from day one. However, she was raised very different than uh, me. But I remember this moment asking her, and there's something going on that night, hey, do you want to come to this thing with me? And she just looked at me and goes, No. And I was like, that's it? Yeah. Just no? Uh-huh. Like not I'd really like to or and, – and she just said no. Yep. And I couldn't believe it. And I'll always remember it. But in time, as time has gone on, I respect that so much. I'm still not there. Yeah. I still can't just say no. I still sure. have to give some explanation. But she just was incredible at it. And it is jarring on the other side a little bit too when people are first starting to establish their boundaries with you. But when you think about it, what an act of kindness, right? To just say no, because now she's not saying yes resentfully and showing mm-hmm. up and like being cranky and being cold. And then you're like, well, why did you say yes if you didn't want to come? And then there's miscommunication all over the place. Boundaries really bring a huge sense of safety into a relationship where you know that you can count on your friend to say what she means. And when you feel free to say no, it makes your yes so much more powerful. Because now if you say, do you want to go? And she says, yes, I do. You know she means it. Yes. And that's an incredible gift in any relationship. I know. At In my young 20s, very jarring. But yeah. now I yeah. respect it so much. Yeah. Someone else said something to me once um, that has really struck me. When you say no, you're saying no to one thing. When you say yes, you're actually saying no to a lot of other things. And that is really interesting for me to think about too, right? Can I just say no to this one thing? Yeah. But yes can now take away, you know, all these other options of things that you can now not say yes to because you said yes to this. Yeah. There's always opportunity cost when we think about what we do and don't want to do. And one of the best things I think you can do in your own boundary practice is to employ a pause. I don't say yes to anything automatically, ever. And sometimes I only pause a moment to think, okay, do I really want to do this? What's my capacity? Sometimes I'll say, thanks for inviting me. I'm going to check my schedule, see what else we have going on this weekend. I'll let you know tomorrow. But I don't ever say yes automatically in the face of sort of pressure or you know, feeling a sense of obligation. Because if I say yes, I want it to mean something. And I would rather say no than say yes and then either show up resentfully or begrudgingly or cancel last minute because I didn't really want to do it. Yeah. Okay. I want to dig into these four categories uh, of where people really need to set boundaries. We've got work time, personal time, ethical dilemmas, and personal space and energy. So let's talk about work. What are some of the biggest challenges you are seeing that people face setting boundaries in the workplace? And what's your your number one tip for your book, from your book? Yeah. So, I mean, workplace, the power dynamics in a workplace or anytime you have a power yes. dynamic, it makes it more challenging to set a boundary because it's not just 
the boss-employee relationship. But if the boundary you need to set is with somebody that your boss just likes better or has tenure in the relationship or tenure in the employment or if they're your boss's golf buddy, you know, there's definitely power dynamics at play. So you want to be conscientious of that. And if you remember that a boundary is never about telling someone else what to do, it's always about telling other people the actions that you will take to keep yourself safe and healthy, then ultimately the boundary in an office that proves that it cannot be respectful and cannot be a safe environment might be that you have to transfer departments or leave the job entirely. And that's certainly not practical for a lot of people. The good news is that I think a lot of people think about it in this binary where they're like, I either need to keep letting my workplace run me over exactly as they have been, or I need to quit my job. And there are a million different opportunities in between to at least try to set boundaries in the office. So setting boundaries around you know, please don't text me after hours unless it's an emergency. If you have a thought in the middle of the night, please send me an email so I can look at it the next day. Or better yet, please schedule your email so it comes in during my work time so I don't come into mm-hmm. like 18 emails from you at 11 p.m. That's a really important one. Or, you know, setting a really bomb-proof out-of-a-way out of message. I am on vacation. I will not be checking email or Slack. I will be back in the office on Monday to an overflowing inbox Thank you for your patience as I work through my responses. That's a much better away message than I'll have limited access to email. I'll reply uh-huh. back to you when I'm back in the office on Monday. So we want to automate as many of those boundaries as we can. The good news about this practice is that surprisingly, it goes well a lot of the time. You have to set the expectation that when I'm out of office, I am not reachable unless it is an emergency and hold that boundary with yourself. And people will just work around it eventually most of the time. And if you find that your office place, even if you've set a green level boundary and then a yellow and you know it's still not working, if you've banded together with your coworkers to say, all of you to your boss, please stop texting us after hours, and that's still not working, at least you'll know you've done everything you can within mm-hmm. that environment to try to make it a respectful and appropriate workplace. And if they prove unable to do that, at least now you know. And you have the option of saying, okay, now what are my next steps? Yeah. And people require some retraining. You know, it's going to take a few times to create new habits and um, to be really firm and to continue to train them. Like we had some people for a while who um, didn't work on Fridays. They did a Mm four-day work week, um, but they kind of felt obligated to check in on Fridays. And this reminder of you have to train people because if you do respond on Fridays, then people get the message, oh, kind of, they really are working. Maybe I can just, you know, see and um, you have to train them. Yes. Sometimes the boundary you need to set is with other people. And then you also need to set a boundary with yourself. Okay. I am on vacation. I am taking email off my phone entirely. I'm turning off notifications. I'm setting Slack to away. Like I will not check myself because I need to hold this boundary for me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually really bad at that. Um, so we'll talk about personal boundaries. And I love that you reference Eve Rodsky's work in your book. I am a huge fan. She's also come and spoken at the club. She's really drove home this idea for me that we treat workplace with far more rigor and discipline than we do our home and personal lives. And we actually really disrespect our home lives a lot if you think about it. You know, we have all these processes around work and a division of labor and clear expectations, all this. And then home, we just have no respect for. It's a big mess. Um, And I know a lot of people, including myself, who are a lot better about boundaries and accountability and frankly, even just relationships at work than I am personally. And so yeah. I've been working through this a lot. And so you, like Eve, are giving us very practical tools for both home and work. And so one that I loved that you have for personal lives is this magic number system. So yeah. if you can tell us you know, what it is, how you came about it, how it works. Yeah. So Anytime you and your romantic partner have a disagreement about something, say, you know, your mother-in-law drops by without calling all the time and you're like, this is so disruptive to me and the kids in the household. This is not okay with me. And your partner says, I really like it when she just drops by. It makes me feel really comfortable and reminds me of home and I want her to feel welcome. Okay, now you're sort of at an impasse. So this is where the magic number system comes in. I want you to think about how important is it to you on a scale of one to 10 that your mother-in-law either calls before she comes over or does not have to call. And you both think about it in your head. You're really staying in your integrity here. And then you share your number. Okay, here we go. I've thought about my number. It is eight out of 10 important that your mom call before she come over. 
she comes over. It's so disruptive to me. I find that when she does visit before, when she doesn't call first, I I can't show up fully. I'm kind of short with her. I'm snippy with her. I think it's hurting our relationship. The kids pick up on that and they're like, why are you being not nice to grandma? It's. I think all of this could just be solved if she called at least an hour before she came. And then your spouse would say, oh, okay, you're an eight. I only like four care. It's nice that I think she can come in anytime, but I don't care that much. And if it would make your life so much easier if she just called an hour before, that seems reasonable. So the person who feels the strongest then sets the boundary. So that's a Mm -hmm. really nice way of kind of talking about in very concrete terms. My husband and I have done it before with whether we leave dishes in the sink. I'm like, babe, I'm a nine out of 10 that I don't like having dishes in the sink. For some reason, that one tiny act makes me bananas and makes me feel like the whole house is out of control. And he's like, oh, I only like two out of 10 care. So because it's so much more important to you, I'm just not going to leave dishes in the sink. And it's like, cool, thanks. So as long as you're staying in your integrity and you're not always like, oh, you're an eight, well, then I'm a nine because that's not going to work. I think the system can be super effective in talking through differences about things like household management and what areas are more important to you and being able to set like reasonable expectations around minimum standards of care. Yeah. It's so good. I highly recommend everyone try it. I think it's such a great tool. Um, Another thing that you talk about in terms of personal lives is that there are so many reasons that people don't ask for the help that they need. And one of them is this fear of indebtedness or obligation that they'd like the help, but then they don't want to get stuck in the situation, right? Where they're paying the price for it for years. So like, I know what it's going to be like, I'm going to They're never going to let me forget it. It's just not worth it. We've all been there. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about this really being clear on the conditions and expectations of a favor and how that helps? I know. I feel like we are unwilling to really get into the nitty gritty details of the favor because we're just – it it seems like we're being ungrateful when someone says, I'd be happy to lend you the money. And then you say, okay – are you sure you can lend this without resentment? Um, what are the terms of payback? Would you like interest? What happens if I miss a payment? Are you going to expect to have input on what I do with this money? Right. It can feel in the moment like, ooh, I can't ask all those questions. They're being nice. But honestly, it is the biggest act of kindness for both of you to set those clear expectations before you say yes. So if you have the opportunity to, you know, I'll give the example of parents saying, we'll help you pay for the wedding. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Are we still going to be able to have exactly the wedding we want or will you expect input because you're paying for it? Are you going to put a bunch of people on the guest list that we don't know but are really important for you to have at the wedding because you're paying for it? Mm -hmm. Are you going to expect any special treatment? Will you want us to pay this back at any point? You know, having those discussions and, and really getting clear on, well, actually, yes, I think since we're paying for it, we should have input. Now you're like, okay, now I need to decide if this is a favor with terms that I can live with. And that will keep yeah. you from a situation where they offer, you accept, and then all of a sudden, all of these strings start attaching. And you're like, man, I never would have said yes if I knew it was going to be like this. Yeah. And you have this phrase that I love, that clear is kind. Yeah. It's so, not my phrase. It's Brene Brown's phrase. Um, oh, she wrote it? it in her book, Dare to Lead, which is a wonderful book. Mm-hmm. And she was talking about it in the framework, of course, of you know c- corporate communication, where yeah. communicating clearly with your team about expectations and projects and what you are and aren't willing to do and how you're feeling in a meeting is an incredibly kind thing to do. And But it really applies to any boundary practice. So I wrote to her and I was like, can I use this? And she was like, absolutely, go for it. You know, when you think about it, asking people to read your mind or guess or interpret your passive aggressive comments, that's not particularly kind. Because if they Mm -hmm. miss and then you end up showing up like frustrated and resentful or blowing up out of anger, they're going to be like, I don't understand. What did I do? That's not a clear communication pattern. So really, speaking clearly is the kindest thing you can do for any relationship. Don't make people read your minds. Don't make them guess. Just communicate what you need and what you feel just like your friend does when she says no. You know, Uh maybe you can say no thank you. Um, And I think that's really (laughs) the biggest gift in any relationship and certainly in any boundary conversation. I know. I do love that um, radical candor grid. And what's so important is you are direct and clear, but that they know it's because you care. Yes. Right? So for people who aren't familiar with this grid, it's a two-by-two axis. And the one axis is how much this person really feels, knows, believes that you care. And then the other is how clear are you being? And so- 
you know, there's a quadrant that is, I don't care and I'm being very direct and clear. Well, now I'm just being a jerk, Yeah. right? Yes. Or I really care, but I'm not being very direct and clear. And now I'm not helping you, right? Yes. I'm either enabling bad behaviors. I'm just not really being a good friend. Or I don't care and I'm not clear and, you know, yeah. then you're just That's aloof. The but so this magic formula of clear and direct and I really care is that's where the magic happens. Yeah. And that is at the heart of my boundary practice. Boundaries are designed to make the relationship better. They are an invitation to people in your life to say, I want you in my life. And here is a limit that you may not have realized that I have. And I'm going to share that with you really clearly and invite you to meet me in that limit so that this relationship can feel safe for both of us, can feel good to both of us, and so that we can both show up with far more freedom and trust and respect. Yeah. And I think what so many of us are afraid of is how that other person is going to feel. So, right. And when you've experienced yourself, like me with my friend, Erin, where I'm like, oh, this doesn't feel very good. You know, I don't like this. And the woman who wrote Radical Candor talks about how it was a horrible feel. She didn't like it. And then she soon came to realize, no, this is actually really good for her. And I think that's where a lot of people, particularly women, get caught up in this um, entanglement of setting boundaries and feeling selfish. Yeah. And so if you can share your insights on how to not take on how the other person is going to react yeah. to or feel about what you're saying, I think we all get so worried about how they're going to feel. Yes, um, we do. And how I mean, can you not take that on? Especially as women and especially as moms, we have been conditioned by the patriarchy and stereotypically rigid gender roles and sometimes religious influences and maybe even diet culture to not have needs and to put everyone else's needs and feelings and comfort above our own. And moms are praised at the highest when they are being selfless, when they have mm -hmm. no self, no needs. Mm -hmm. And we've been told all along that communicating our needs is selfish. And the people who tell us that are the people who benefit from us having no limits, but we've certainly internalized that message that having needs and feelings and communicating them are selfish. And Boundaries are not about saying only me. I only care about myself and my needs, but they're saying also me. I care about you and your feelings and your needs, but I also care about my own and they're equally important. Mm -hmm. I think also that certain influences, maybe it's childhood influences where if our parents were always arguing and we felt like we had to be the peacemaker or you know, trauma or abuse can make us feel as though our job is to manage other people's feelings. And that can be, of course, one of the reasons why we don't want to set a boundary because what if they don't like it and then we feel like we have to comfort them or make them feel better about it or maybe we'll just give up on the boundary altogether because they push back so much. It's really important to unlearn all of that and to recognize that as an adult, they are responsible for their feelings. It is not my job to manage their feelings. In fact, it's not even my business. I'm going to set the boundary that I need to keep myself safe and healthy. And I know that this boundary would improve our relationship. And you get to feel however you want to feel about it. If you're upset, if you feel defensive, if you don't understand it, if you're taken aback, I am going to just, and you want to shove that onto me, I'm just going to gently pass that on back to you because that is not yeah. my responsibility to manage. I need you to take responsibility for your own feelings. I am going to provide some space. I'm going to have compassion and grace because I understand that when I say no, it can feel jarring. I understand that. I'm going to give you the space you need to process that and some compassion because I understand, but I'm not going to go back on my boundary. I'm not going to over explain and make sure that you agree with it. I'm not going to make you try to feel better. And I'm not going to take their response as a sign that somehow my boundary was wrong or bad right? because that's not the case. I'm going to allow the other people to respond how they want to respond. And, and remember that how someone chooses to show up immediately in the face of your boundary may not be how they show up long-term. It can be challenging to be on the face of a no, or this isn't a good fit, or that doesn't work for me. And very often, if you just give people a little bit of time, they come back around and they say, okay, that was Ooh, that was a little jarring for me or it was a little uncomfortable, but now I see how it was a kindness or thank you so much or I don't understand it, but I love you. And yeah, of course, I'll meet this. I'll, I'll meet you in this. Mm -hmm. um, have you heard of or followed this um, psychologist, Dr. Becky? She's gotten of a course. lot of- like, yeah, yeah, Dr. Yeah, Becky okay. Kennedy. Her great. new book, Good Inside, yes. is fantastic. It's so good. Yeah. And um, 
I listened to this one podcast with she and another psychologist and they were talking about, like I love what she does. She's walking back a lot of these like things that we have yeah. conditionally been told are like good for child rearing and saying, no, actually this isn't so great. Um, but one of this is not saying no. And I remember that when my kids were born, they're only seven and a half, but reading this literature and people telling me, oh, you shouldn't use the word no because then they learn the word no. And so you want to say things like not right now. or And so I really took that on. Yeah. And they listened to this podcast a month ago and she's like, no, you need to tell your kids no. <laughs> like this is actually creating a real problem with boundaries. Like no is a real thing. Yeah. And no is not a bad word. And, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I've been trying to stay away from no with my kids and now you know, use no. Um, but it's it's part of all of this, right? Like yeah. it, we have to learn that these things are, they're okay. Yeah. It's okay to just say no. And you know, this is what I find because I am so willing to say no and I'm so confident and comfortable in my no because I check in with my own needs and my own feelings and I, you know, I'm comfortable advocating for myself. What I find is that people in my circle now are like, oh, maybe I can start saying no. And they mm -hmm. feel comfortable saying no with me, which is cool. I see that in my own kid yeah. where I like reach, you know, we're on the couch watching a movie and I'm like, hey, do you want to snuggle? And he's like, nope, that's it. He doesn't feel like he needs to, you know, manage my feelings or like, oh, mom wants a hug. So I guess I'll give her a hug. He's like, no. And I'm like, cool, all good. So it's, a, you know, you can be the ripple in the pond that encourages yep. this unlearning and relearning of new patterns and behaviors for everyone in your life. And that is how real change happens in your social circles, in your family, in your work environment. Like you can be the change agent. Yeah. Okay, there's the fourth bucket that I want to get to, which is the ethical dilemmas. And it's the one that I personally have really been wrestling with lately. And it is how to be a strong ally in the face of racist family members, we'll just say. So there are many people with whom I have disconnected because it's clear our values aren't aligned, yeah. not a good fit, right? Yeah. You know, as we talked about before, we're not a good match. I no longer want to be in relationship with them. Sure, it's kind of hard, but it doesn't have lasting consequences. Not so easy. Yeah. When it's a direct family member, um, not even just a parent or a sibling, even if it's just a cousin or an aunt or uncle. And I feel like this is the place where I'm still struggling setting boundaries because it's one thing to say, no longer have room for this friend in my life. You can't really say no longer have room for this parent in my life, right? Because yeah. it's your only parent. Um, and I feel like if all we're going to do is just talk about surfacey topics like weather and sports, then is that really a relationship? So I'm personally really struggling with this, how yeah. to navigate allyship, boundaries, and family. And I would love any insights you have to share. Yes. This is really challenging. And it's, the holidays are upon us. And yep. this is my number one request, I think, around the holidays, yep. especially, you know, the with the election and social justice efforts and COVID, I feel like there have been a lot of challenges to, in families. I certainly can't tell anyone what to do. For some people, the dis, kind of the divide in values is so great and so stark that they're like, I would just rather not show up for Thanksgiving than show up and maybe be subjected to this conversation. I will say that we have a difference of opinion in some members of my extended family that I want to keep in my life. It's very important to me to keep it in my life. And so what we have said is we will not talk about or bring up in any capacity, social justice issues, politics, religion, this laundry list of topics, we don't talk about it. Hard stop. And everyone agrees to that because that's the way, that's the only way that we're going to be able to maintain a relationship. So when I show up at dinner, we know that that's off the table and we can talk about our jobs. We can talk about hiking. We can talk about travel. And, you know, you ask the question, is that really a meaningful relationship? It absolutely can be. There are some folks with which you have to find things to talk about that feel personal and that feel connective, but that don't bridge this divide where you really have a hard boundary. And the beauty of just spelling this out up front is that, number one, they don't like hearing your point of view any more than you like hearing theirs. So this really benefits the entire relationship. And point two, getting to this agreement ahead of time means that when you sit down at dinner and somebody brings something up about immigration, you can say, ooh, nope, we agreed. We're not talking about that at this at Thanksgiving dinner. But uh, Uncle Joe, tell me about your vacation. And you can immediately change the subject. And if they respect that in the moment then your boundary holds and you're able to enjoy the rest of the dinner. So that is one way that I think can be really effective in terms of navigating the family dynamic. If they won't, if they won't agree not to talk about it, or if they say they won't talk about it, but show up in head to toe campaign mm -hmm. gear from their favorite politician, and which is a very passive aggressive move, uh -huh. then it might just be, 
this is not how I'm going to spend my Thanksgiving. And you may have to limit the way you communicate with them, the method of communication. Maybe you don't spend time together in person, but you communicate via email and that allows you to control the conversation better. There are still a number of limits that you can set before you completely cut this person off. And if you want to keep them in your life, I, I implore you to explore those. Yeah. All right. Well, we all have lots of opportunities to practice. We sure do. December. Start early. (laughs) Yep. So there's so much in the book. Everyone, please read it. Uh, I know you have just a few talking points, key takeaways, if they can just remember the one thing from this podcast. So what is it that you hope people will get from reading this book? I want people to remember that boundaries are a gift, that boundaries are a few clear, kind sentences that can immediately help you reclaim your time, your energy, your capacity, your physical space, your mental health. You have the power right now to set a boundary either with yourself or with someone else that is going to help you claw back some of this stuff that is so precious and we have in such short supply. They can be so incredibly immediately effective. Yep. So one final thing we love to do with all of our podcast participants is we do a rapid fire. Um, if it'll only take a couple minutes if Let's you're do up it. for it. I'm ready. Okay. Don't don't overthink. Okay. Just quick questions. Your favorite emoji? The skull. Dog or cat? Dog. Morning person or night owl? Morning. Favorite smell? Freshly cut grass. An app on your phone you can't live without? Oh, the Delta app. Your best life hack? Don't hit snooze. What are you most afraid of? Heights. What is in your trunk of your car right now? Uh, a couple of reusable tote bags and some hiking gear. And what would you go back and say to 18-year-old Melissa? No, oh, 18-year-old Melissa wouldn't listen to anything I would say. But <laughs> I would say all of the things that you feel like make you less than are actually your superpowers and you're doing just fine. So great. Thank you for being with us here today, Melissa. This Thank was such you. a treat. It was so good to chat with you again, Margaret. Thanks for having me. That's all for today's episode of The Executives Exchange, sponsored by Sure Incorporated. Thanks for listening. If you have Chicago speakers you think we should cover, please send us an email at media at executivesclub.org. The Executives Exchange is a production of the Executives Club of Chicago. Audio equipment for the Executives Club podcast is provided by Sure. Whether you're making a point or making history, Sure lets you sound extraordinary. It's written by me, Margaret Mueller, produced by Eva Pinar. Research and support from the staff of the Executives Club of Chicago. We appreciate you subscribing and reviewing the show from wherever you listen. Feel free to follow the club on Twitter at Exec Club and on LinkedIn. If you have more questions or are interested about becoming a member at the Executives Club of Chicago, check us out on the web at executivesclub.org. <laughs>